All right, y'all. This is the last take of the year and technically the last Podmas episode. So I wanted to close it out with something a little spicy, a little controversial, and I'm just going to say I have problems with China in Africa. Hi everyone, I'm Wendy Meads, creator of the Left Pocket Project, which brings you the history of leftists of color, one swipe at a time. And this is the Left Pocket Project Podcast. Just for those who might not be aware, you can definitely check out all of our stuff on social media by just searching for Left POC. And of course, you can donate a dollar or more per month and check out some other goodies, including the podcast episodes, but some other things by going to our Patreon page, and that's patreon.com slash left POC. Again, that's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash left POC. So um, <laughs> I started this episode off with a little bit of controversy, trying to be a little clickbaity. Um, but in actuality, I do have a problem with China and Africa, but my problem boils down primarily, although I have some caveats here, but primarily to that framing. I want to talk about the framing of the idea of China in Africa, Africa as if it is a country. And I have found that, um, just as someone who, who has some aspects of Africa, um, Southern Africa specifically, Lusophone Africa even more specifically, in my research, it's really, 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 really frustrating to hear people on both left, right, and center, I says that's more than both, but three, <laughs> three political aspects in this country, but going beyond that, the myriad political options in this country, um, and, and I guess elsewhere too, talking about China in Africa as if okay, China's a country, but Africa is this like monolithic uh, continent that has the same political goals, backgrounds, beliefs, and forms of governance. So I just want to break it down a little bit because it's, it's incredibly frustrating. And I think it's even more grating for me to hear this from people on the left. Um, when I talk about left, I'm not talking about liberals. I'm talking about people who identify as communists, socialists, um, people who are actually often pro-China and to some degree, somewhat, I would argue, or even standing China in quite unhealthy ways. Um, but I say that just because, you know, I'm, I'm someone who is a communist, but I recognize that not all countries are perfect. Not all governments are perfect. Um, not every single government that calls itself communist or socialist is engaging 100% in those practices, etc. So I think sometimes people become, they have not only um, a, an overly simplified view of Africa, continent, not country, um, but they view it as a country, but also very limited understandings um, and kind of like overly simplistic, I would say, views on China as well. Um, so I've kind of been neutral in this whole thing because I, I don't really have a dog in this fight. I, I think that countries have a right to engage um, in diplomatic uh, 
exchanges and, and trade and things like that with other countries as they so see fit. Um, and primarily as they benefit the population or populations on either side. So I, I really, you know, I'm not one of those people who's like, obsessed with China and always talking about how much they love China, but I'm also not one of those people who's like, China doesn't have the right to engage in trade with anybody. <laughs> like, I think it's just kind of ridiculous. And I think a lot of the competition and like crazy, like already kind of trying to warmonger against China, like stuff that's going on in the U.S. in terms of its rhetoric, is just dangerous. And first and foremost, like unhelpful, right? I mean, it doesn't really make any sense. Um, and a lot of the propaganda against China is just silly. Um, one of the things that have, has been coming out pretty much since the start of the pandemic, but not only, of course, blaming China for the pandemic, but then getting mad at China when they try to control the pandemic. Like, why would you be mad at a country that's trying to limit spread? Like, I, I, I don't get this, right? So there are two, I feel like the U.S. press, um, and, and that includes with the liberal and conservative press, which when it comes to foreign policy, often are shaking hands emoji, right? Like um, they they agree in large part on uh, U.S. approaches that are often hawkish and just like ridiculously, again, unhelpful when it comes to the rest of the world. Um, so one thing that they definitely agree on is their hawkishness toward China, at least now. Um, and what I thought was hilarious is at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, there was a lot of rhetoric around... Um, Initially, it was like downplaying everything, right? So this isn't a big deal. It's just like the flu. It's just some sort of pneumonia, whatever. Um, China's overreacting, right? They really, they got mad um, and they used it to sort of play into this idea of China being this hyper draconian, um, limiting freedoms type state, right? So they showed images of Chinese police like attacking people at the border and like pulling people out of their cars and there were stories of people getting sealed into their homes and all these really like, I would argue rather fantastical, um, uh, discussions of what China was doing and its approach to the pandemic. Now, certainly there's probably a kernel of truth to that. There may have been individual cases of people who were in, um, political or, you know, policing positions or whatever. They went overboard. I don't doubt that. Um, but I also think that, I mean, we saw that here too, right? Like to a large degree at the beginning. Um, and then people were just like, whatever, the police kind of got over it. They remember when they were like harassing black teens for not wearing masks outside. And then there were like all these white people just like chilling in Central Park uh, that no one said anything to. But anyway, again, I'm getting off track. Uh, that aside, the response from the U.S. press was that China was going overboard. That was the initial one, that this isn't a big deal and that China's going overboard in their response. But that was, again, to play it on this idea that, like, you don't have any freedom in China, right? Um, and then the next flip of the switch politically and in the press was to blame China for the pandemic. So, um, ew, it's about these Chinese people and their nasty food habits. Look at them. They eat pangolin and whatever. Um, and then it was like, oh, the lab was like improperly handling things because you know, those Chinese people, they just don't know how to handle scientific research or whatever. Like there were lots of racist, um, uh, you know, arguments on both sides of, of why they think the pandemic started in Wuhan. Um, not as much was said at the time about U.S. funding of these labs and, and um, gain-of-function research and things like that, which is sort of a separate discussion that I don't want to go into. Um, but I do think it's just interesting that that was downplayed quite a bit because 
it was it just so happened that like the Trump administration was uh, they were the ones who started up this process again and funding this type of research. So <clears throat> that tea aside, <laughs> um, just kind of thinking about the rhetoric and how the flip flop happened throughout. Um, it always came back to somehow blaming China, right? Which I just think is uncalled for and ridiculous. Um, but even if there were a mistake in the lab or that it was some sort of natural issue, I mean, the reality is that however it started, it started. We're living with it. And China is actually handling things better. There's been some discussion about China um, distorting its numbers or not representing its numbers fully or whatever, but I have a feeling that if China's numbers were as bad as some Americans think, um, especially if they were on U.S. levels of bad, talk about projection, right? Um, if they were on that level, China, like we would know, <laughs> we would know if like, because China has such a huge population, we would absolutely know if that many Chinese people were dying from COVID. And not to mention the fact that like there's so much, you know, surveillance and spying and things like that going on by Americans in China and UK and China and things like that. We would have dispatches about this, right? We would have information about this. And then they would start playing that up, right? Every week in the news, we would get this, oh my God, you know, millions of Chinese people are dying from COVID. Look at how they're handling this this epidemic, this pandemic so poorly. Right. So I think that there would be some news on this if, if the death rate were that bad, um, if the numbers were that distorted, but in actuality, what we've seen in China and throughout Eastern Asia, to be quite honest, um, if you're talking about, you know, South Korea, um, Japan, um, Singapore, there has been a really, 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 I, I would say, I would argue, you know, well-managed, um, aspect to this. They have not, seen anything to the proportion of U.S. COVID numbers, and they've actually done a much better job. However, we feel about how they chose to do it, draconian or whatever or not, um, it's working, right? Whatever they're doing is working. And majority, the, the primary reason for that, many argue in the science community at least, is that East Asia had um, experience with the first SARS, the original SARS, right? Um, and several other, uh, you know, avian and other flus that they just were conditioned and knew how to respond. Um, they had the, the infrastructure in place and the kind of social practices in place, right? Masking, social distancing, things like that, that helped facilitate this much better management of the pandemic um, in that region. Now, I'm not saying it's perfect, but it's by comparison, if you compare things to what's going on in the U.S. right now, which is just unmitigated spread, they're doing a hell of a lot better in terms of not only hospitalizations, but deaths and overall case rates, right? Um, people are just doing much better. Um, also, I forgot to mention, sorry, Taiwan is another one that's like often Hong Kong, Taiwan, these areas, um, these islands are often cited as, um, you know, really doing really well. Uh, in response to the pandemic. So kudos to them for that. I don't, I don't want to take that away from anyone. Um, but anyway, the main reason I decided to, to record this is because I'm frustrated by the discussion of China and Africa. And I mean specifically the Africa part, because Africa is a continent made up of several, <laughs> several, ten, like, like many, many, many countries, right? Not just several, like several is way downplaying it. Many, many, many countries. And all these countries, as I said before, have their own approaches in terms of governance. They have in different government leaders and forms of leadership. They have different economies. They have different natural resources. They have different ways and histories of dealing with trade. They come from different political backgrounds. Um, you know, some are run by 
oligarchs and despots that have been in power for a like a gajillion years um, who are neo-colonial in mindset. And some are run by people who are a bit more progressive. Um, some are run by people who are um, who have a lot of owe a lot of money to the IMF. Some are not, you know, so every single case economically, socially, governmentally is different. Um, and we as leftists should know better than to talk about a quote unquote Africa as if it's this blanket. They have this blanket form of governance, blanket form of relationships with other countries. I think it's important if we talk about China and its relationship with individual countries in Africa, like I think that's more important because I think that's how you can see a more accurate picture of what's going on in terms of Chinese relations throughout the continent. Um, we right now, I think leftists are responding in many ways in a knee jerk fashion to claims by liberals, centrists and the right that Chinese people, um, be it businesses or the government are exploiting Africans again, as a very blanket, like understanding of what Africa quote unquote is. Right. Um, and I understand that, that impetus, right? Like I understand the motivation that you would have to respond in that way because you see China as a communist state that's dealing with threats from the U S um, and that you have a problem with the portrayal of, uh, China as this sort of predator in Africa. And I understand, again, I understand why people would defend China on those grounds, but I also think that you can engage in a defense of a country without overshadowing or oversimplifying or discussing um, the other places that it's interacting with as if they're all the same. And I'm just going to say it, talking about China in Africa as if Africa is this monolithic one country continent is racist and you sort of builds on colonial ideas of what Africa, again, I keep using that as like in quotation marks as if it's one country is right. Um, it denies African countries, their sense of difference and right to autonomy in these engagements with China, which itself is one country, right? So it's fine to say China. Um, but I also think it's important, even if we're talking about the Chinese side to break down that discussion too. Are these countries, in, do they have relationships with Chinese companies? Do they have relationships with the Chinese government? Those may look different. And I think we have to be honest about the ways that they look different, right? And to be more um, specific in our discussions about what quote unquote China is doing too, because there's a difference between, let's say, China and a Chinese company, Chinese government versus Chinese company. Um, and this is a problem actually during like older forms of what we talked about, you know, like European colonialism, where sometimes there were European countries that had one relationship with um, certain countries in Africa and European companies that had a slightly different relationship with certain countries in Africa. Now, sometimes those two things were overlapping, if not um, the same, right? The country would allow those companies to engage in practices that were, that were awful. Um, but there were also some cases where the country was doing more damage um, in that like fill in the blank African country. Right. So you have to be kind of careful, um, when you talk about these things on the Chinese side as well. Um, and I, I get frustrated when people who clearly don't have any knowledge <laughs> of, um, African countries and the resources that are being discussed and the kind of relationships 
you know, what kind of governments they're talking about on the African, quote unquote, African side, African countries' sides um, in, in dealing with, with China, right? It, it's just frustrating. And I think it's very, it becomes very evident. Um, and it, it's been kind of a theme throughout um, my work on left POC where like there's not very much knowledge of, of African governance and countries and individual um, politics on a national level on the left. There's just a, like a, a, a kind of a really, really big knowledge gap. Um, not only that, but not just knowledge of African history, um, but also just African politics. I think sometimes people get, um, they have this very nostalgic view of certain countries and they, they see them as heroic against colonialism, which like, yes, do that. That's fine. I think in those historical moments, it's really important to recognize that. But I also think that sometimes people then it's almost as if they, they freeze time. Right. And then they don't recognize what happened after the fact. So a good example, just from lived experience and from, from my own research and whatnot is Mozambique. Now I'm not an expert on Mozambique by any means, even though I work on Mozambican history to some degree for my work, I'm not one of those people who like, Oh, I read a book and I'm an expert on Mozambique. And I really hate it when people do that sort of stuff. Like just because Mozambique or a period of time in, in whatever country's history is part of your work doesn't mean that you're like a full on expert on the country. That's just ridiculous. Now I can say with confidence that, okay, I'm an expert on Brazil. I've lived there. I've worked there. I've researched it for many, many years. I'm fluent in the language. You know, like there are differences in that. But even then, I think we need to be humble enough, myself included, to say, I don't know everything, right? I don't think I'm ever going to know everything. And no one's going to ever know everything, right? So expertise is still limited in a lot of ways. Um, so I acknowledge that in, in what I'm about to say. But from my understanding of Mozambican history, and my knowledge of that, and then my knowledge and, and actual experience in the country now, in the present past few years, I can say that Frelimo, which was the, you know, independence party that, that freed Mozambican people from Portuguese rule. I mean, you have to give them credit for that. That's amazing, right? Like, no doubt, this is beyond measure in terms of like their impact. But now it's, it started as a socialist, um, party, you know, um, and it was under the, the governance of people like, um, Samora Machel, who really changed the game in terms of, um, you know, socialist politics in the country. And I would argue throughout the region and throughout Africa, I mean, it had a huge impact. Right. Um, but nowadays Fred Limo is not the country is sorry, is not the, the political party of Samora Machel. Right. Um, it's a, it's a political party that over time was eaten up through, um, you know, intervention from the Portuguese, intervention from other European and even America, or the European countries and even the United States. Um, it was torn up because of the sort of fall of the USSR and other, um, the, I would say, economic problems in other um, left-leaning countries or leftist countries like Cuba, right? It was greatly impacted by those economic problems. And then add to that the simple fact that, again, it became really... Um, you know, deeply, deeply entrenched in terms of debt and other other international relations that turned it basically into a neoliberal party. Now, that is not to say that the opposing parties in Mozambique are are all that left themselves. I mean, there are definitely some remnants from the anti-colonial wars um, 
in terms of political parties that that have very dark pasts and that continue to engage in practices that some of us would say are you know anti-democratic or not that are not good for the people but at the same time i think it's important to acknowledge that the party of the past is not always going to be the party of the present this is reality right like and i think sometimes when people get stuck on that they get stuck on the image or the name but then they don't uh, or they they sort of have this crystallized sense of history as if nothing ever changes after that and that's a problem guys like this is a very again it's almost like sort of a colonial view of of african politics african political progress african political change um and specifically in places like mozambique arguably angola as well places that had for a moment in time these really radical leftist governments um those things change, you know, leadership changes and not every single African leader is the same, right? Like not every single political party and political leader is the same. And people have their own motivations. People are influenced through, um, you know, surveillance and, and very, really, really damaging degrees, again, of, of debt um, that are owed to people like the IMF or people, but institutions like the IMF, World Bank, etc., um, that changed the way political parties operate. And um, we've seen that in the United States, right? Like, how is it that all of a sudden in other countries that that never happens, right? Like, we have to be honest about some of these changes. And so I say all of this to say that if you look at a Mozambican relationship with China, it's going to be different from a Moroccan relationship with China. It's going to be different from an Angolan relationship with China. It's going to be different from you know, uh, an Ethiopian relationship with China. Each of these countries have, they may be, you know, maybe have a political party that used to be socialist or communist or whatever back in the day, but is not that anymore. And I think in some cases, you know, this reliance on this past is because people have not bothered to keep track of what's going on in these countries in the present. They have not bothered to read a news article and see how the country is reacting to XYZ threat supposed threat or xyz economic or environmental or, or social problem right like they're not paying attention to what is going on in the present and i think that's a very dangerous um dangerous practice uh that some leftists engage in um because it's just it's just out of laziness right um and in and i think in ways that they don't do at least in my from what i've seen they don't do this to say european political parties right no one's going to look at the current labor leadership and say that's the same thing as what Jeremy Corbyn wanted to do or that's the same. You know what I mean? Like they know all their names. They know like how the parties have evolved over time. They know their current stances. You can't say the same about their engagement with African countries. And I would argue as well with some Latin American countries, right? I think there's a similar thing that goes on in Latin American countries as well, where they look at these countries, at these political parties or political leaders that had one stance in the seventies that may have changed in the meantime. Right. Um, and there's not as much, um, knowledge or acknowledgement of those changes. Some of those changes are for the better, arguably. Um, but those are, those are, I think acknowledged, but some of the changes for the worse not, are not necessarily acknowledged. And so that's my ultimate problem with, China in Africa, quote unquote, it's not so much, I mean, I, I could have a, a deeper discussion about Chinese engagement in specific countries and some problems I have with it, uh, or things that I think are great 
especially in comparison to um, African countries' relationships with Europe or parts of Europe, uh, especially France and England um, and, and the United States, for example. We can obviously have those kinds of discussions. And I think there are, there are experts out there and people in general who do a really good job of this. Um, and and Alamadi is one that, that comes to mind. Um, I think he's done a good job of breaking down African politics by country, which is why I would highly suggest everybody follow him, Milton Alamadi, just to give you the name. Um, but, you know, I, I think that if we want to have a better discussion about what's going on in terms of international trade, international diplomacy, and even ongoing histories, we need to be careful about not making blanket statements about all of Africa, because not every African country is the same. And it's kind of ridiculous that I have to even say that. Um, but I think it's something that people really need to learn more about and start educating themselves out of, um, because it's, a, again, it's a practice that's a holdover from these very colonialist ideas of what, um, Africa, <laughs> again, continent, not country, is. Um, and I, I think, too, that if people had a deeper understanding of these differences, we would have a much richer conversation about Chinese engagement in these countries. Because in some in some cases, you can look at the, the relationship and say, mm, this seems a little uneven, right? It seems like the, the Chinese government is gaining more from this country than the country is gaining in in reciprocity right um or or you can look at some relationships and say that's perfect right like this is exactly what we should follow this is a model we should follow um this is something that's benefiting both sides right i think it really depends on the situation and i just want to also caution people from mishearing me right i think sometimes people might take a discussion like this and say oh she's one of those academics who's saying nuance blah blah no i'm not I'm not one of those people. Like, I'm not interested in that kind of debate. I think it's silly. I'm not saying that we should be frowning on African countries engaging in diplomatic relationships with other countries and going beyond the sort of hegemonic relationships that had been established between them and the U.S. or them and European countries. No, 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 no. I think countries should be allowed to go with the options that work best for them, that work best for their people, that work best for their current political and economic situation. But I also think, like I said, I think we have to be careful about not seeing African politics as a monolith and understanding that African leadership varies by country. Not, I mean, a lot of these people are not socialists, <laughs> you know, they're not necessarily thinking about the people. They might be thinking about lining their pockets and thinking about what wealthy Africans can do or the top 10% or top 5% or whatever can benefit from a certain trade agreement as opposed to, or like certain companies and, and people who own these companies, as opposed to actual people on the ground, right? So it really just depends. And we have to be careful about that. And I think, you know, taking the time to actually learn more about these individual countries would help us better understand individual national relationships that are formed with China and be even thinking beyond China, right? Like international relationships or sorry, individual national relationships formed with Russia, formed with the U.S., formed with France, for you know. Um, I know, speaking for, for myself as an American, that U.S. engagement throughout Africa, every single country in Africa, is um, parasitic. <laughs> you know, like, it's deeply tied up in 
the military, um, deeply tied up in AFRICOM, deeply tied up in, you know, having both governmental oversight, um, intervention, I would argue not oversight, but intervention, control over trade, control over the economies of these countries, control over even the social um, makeup of these countries. So I, I will happily be monolithic in that case. I know that that's the case. Um, but I think that when it comes, and, and I would argue France similarly has a very parasitic relationship with every single African country that it engages with. It is an uneven situation. Um, but, you know, I think what's also unfortunate is that in many cases, Africa as a continent is used as a sort of playing space or play, you know, like, like, a, a, a ground on which upon which these countries play out their own political beefs. We saw that and we continue to see that in the Middle East as well. Um, and again, many countries in the Middle East, but thinking in terms of the way geopolitics work, um, you know, the U.S., Russia, China, but especially the U.S. and Russia in the Middle East more so, um, whereas in Africa, it's, it's U.S., China, France and arguably England as well in some regions. Um, Portugal a little bit in the the, the Portuguese speaking countries, um, but for the most part, it's U.S., France, China, and England. Um, and so again, you know, there are some areas where I think we can happily make sweeping judgments, sweeping discussions, sweeping statements. Um, but in in others, I think it is dangerous to do that um, because we're reducing again. We're reducing. Um, the African side of things to being this one um, single solitary set of thoughts and beliefs and practices um, and resources and economies and things like that, that I think is, I think doing that is, is harmful. And let this be a call perhaps to um, people on the left to educate themselves more on different countries in Africa. If anything, and one thing that's really helpful um, if you don't already do this is like pick a couple countries, right? Pick two or three countries or, um, you know, specific trade deals, study those, get to know those. Well, you know, you don't have to know every single thing about every single country and people again, need to be humble enough to recognize that I am not, I'm not an expert on any African country in my opinion, but there are some that I know more about just because of what I've studied in history. But again, you will not see me ever on my timeline being like, Hey, let me tell you all about, you know, um, Nigeria, let me just go on, you know, I'm going to do many, many threads on Nigeria. And it's like, no, I know a little bit about my Nigerian history. I don't know a ton. It's not a country that I focus on in my research. It's not a country I've ever been to. I have lots of friends and, you know, colleagues from there, but that doesn't mean anything, right? Like at the end of the day, I say, if you want to be someone who has an opinion on something and wants to go a little bit further in depth, Pick a few places. Don't try to know everything. Pick a few places. Study their histories. Learn about their their current day situations. Try to read from a variety of sources from those countries too. That's another thing. Like we often are um, tied to these Western um, newspapers and magazines that have their own interests when they talk about African countries, right? So keep that in mind too. Where are we getting our information from? If if you're just reading from Chinese sources about Africa, that's a problem too, because you're not getting the African perspective necessarily about what's going on. Um, and again, African perspective is not a monolith. It's like there are many, many, many perspectives, even within one country in Africa, right? Um, so just to be mindful of that and to try to 
to learn more and to educate yourself. If you want to make this a new year's resolution, um, do that. And I think it'll really benefit a lot of people. Um, and I think it will benefit the left too, to be more, um, I, I don't know. I mean, more, um, fluent, I would say in understanding others' histories and not just Western histories. Um, and, and I think that would go a really long way, um, for Western leftists. I also just want to say before I close, um, that, you know, again, I don't have as much of a dog in this fight. I'm sort of neutral on it. Um, cause I, I am of the mindset that countries should be allowed to do what they want to do. Um, you know, they, if they have democratically elected, elected governance and they have, um, you know, the right, they have every, every country uh, ultimately has the right to do what they want to do. And if they have a problem with what their government government is doing, they also have the right to fight them, to vote them out, to overthrow them, to do whatever they feel is best. Right. So if they're, if they feel like their country's relationship with China is predatory or, or you know, if China is being predatory in their country, they know what to do. And I think I, I trust that they have the ability to, to make us think about that and to do what they want to do to, to fight against that, um, to some degree. Now our country is a little bit more difficult to change in that sense because we, our government is not accountable to the people in any way. Um, cause it's one big corporation, but I know just from seeing movements over the years throughout, um, Southern Africa, that there is potential for, you know, people within these countries to, uh, protest and have their voices heard to some degree. And, you know, if, if they found that their relationship was predatory in some way, they would, I trust that they would, they would handle it. And I think that that's really hard for some people to do in the West, um, regardless of their political background, because they think that they have to have a say, um, that their voice matters more than people who live in these countries. And it doesn't, it really doesn't. Um, at the end of the day, if they find something beneficial in their relationship, and it's not causing mass harm um, the way that like militaries from the U.S. or France will do, then more power to them. Um, they they have the right to make the decisions on their own that they think are best. So those are my thoughts. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do to wrap up Podmas. It's kind of a random uh, Podmas episode, but one I think it's just an idea that's been on my mind and, and has been frustrating to see on many sides, this very reductive discussion. Um, I would like to see in the new year change. Hopefully I encourage you. I challenge you to learn a little bit more before you open your mouth. Um, and try really to, to think about the many layers to these relationships and the histories that go into these relationships and what they mean and how that can make for much more, uh, it's a much more fruitful conversation than I think reducing Africa to one monolithic space politically and otherwise. Uh, so yeah, I hope that everyone has a safe new year's Eve and a wonderful new year. Thank you all so much for your patience, um, and magnanimity <laughs> as I've dealt with many challenges of my own this particular month and end of last month, um, didn't get in as many episodes as I would have liked, but hopefully maybe next year, if I do Podmas again, we can really shoot for one episode a day, a few more guests and things like that. Um, I thank Michael Salomon for being on as our sole guest for Podmas. And of course, Richard, my co-host for coming on for that episode as well. Um, 
But yeah, January, we'll see what happens uh, with Omicron and potential school closures or my even homeschooling my child. I may have to take another hiatus. Who knows? But we'll see what happens. I will keep everybody posted on that. Um, so that's going to be the end of this episode. As per usual, make sure you check out the Left Pocket Project um, wherever you get your podcasts and uh, on social media. You can find us by searching for Left POC on any of those. Um, and we're going to be doing a little bit more work in the coming year to change, not change things for the negative, but change things in terms of expanding um, the project a bit. And if, if my particular situation allows, it's going to be rough, but I'll see what I can do. <laughs> it's gonna, this year is just going to be, I already can tell it's going to be a bit crazy, but we'll see what happens. Anyway, take care of yourselves. Happy New Year and uh, have a good one. Bye-bye.